But we're digging in now into Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 14. Uh, Genesis 1, and we dealt with uh, a lot of the way in which God creates in order to covenant with us. And then he, he gives us this world so that we can covenant with him. And then finally, we get this view of that sixth creation day in a little bit more detail. And so I want to read first what we have from verses 4 through 15, or 4 through 14 here in chapter 2. Listen to the way that, that God begins to take us more in depth into this creation day and shows us something critically important for us as human beings. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust. He formed him from the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man in whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. The one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Adelium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Jihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth is the Euphrates. I'm just going to read here verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we ask that this morning you would teach us everything that you would have us know about what it looks like to live in faithfulness to you. God, would you teach us by your word, your spirit to transform us by it. We ask in your name, Jesus. Amen. So Doug Engel drank a gallon of Red Mountain wine. It's the beginning of every good story. Doug Engel drank a gallon of Red Mountain wine, and he told his friend Ron Bushy about this great idea he had for a song, which is how all good songs start too, right? It was a ballad about falling in love, and the riff and the words, they timed out to about a minute and a half. Now, contemporary versions of this song last as long as 37 minutes, if you've heard it. The song was called In a Garden of Eden. But when Doug dictated on Red Mountain wine, Ron thought he said, In a Gata de Vida. And what became one of Iron Butterfly's hardest rock songs ever was written about the Garden of Eden. There are probably only five people in this room that know what I'm talking about right now, okay? By the way, raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. Inagata Davida, Iron Butterfly. Thank you. And I let, thanks, Matt, for bringing at least two more people who understand what I'm talking about. And they'll tell you about this song later. You can listen to it. It's got a great organ riff in it. Anyway, um, Inagata Davida. So what became uh, Iron Butterfly's hardest song is written about this place, about this garden. And, and it shouldn't be surprising, why not? I mean, there is some epic imagery here. There are some things going on within the garden that should blow our minds. But 
like many things, like the wallpaper of our days, we kind of have learned to, to read over them a little bit, right? And to not think about exactly what's happening at this point in, uh, in creation. And so as we do that, I think what happens is that our, our understanding of the creation and our interaction with it becomes a little twisted, garbled, misunderstood, right? The Garden of Eden becomes an Agata Davida. It changes what it's supposed to be. So as we read this, I think the question that we're really made to ask is what's the story that's, that God is telling here in the middle of this garden creation? And why are there two trees? Why place them there at all? So the story, as you read it, kind of if you pay attention to what's happening here in these first verses, God surrounds his human creation with beauty. The scriptures say that the best of the world, the very best looking plants. I'm not a big plant guy, okay? I'm not one that likes to surround his life with plants, although I know what it looks like when good plants spring up. My wife is an excellent gardener. And, and so things just spring up. I mean, through a lot of work, things just spring up around our house. And it's beautiful. It's wonderful. But I can't imagine what it would mean to say, these are the very best. Not just because I love my wife and I think everything she does is great. But in general, right, these are the very best of plants. The very best. And not just the best looking, but the best to eat. And my, my level of disbelief rises as I think there are no pizza plants out there, right? So somehow, this plant is so very good to eat. It is delicious looking. It is delicious to the eyes. It's a wonderful reality that they're kind of being surrounded by. And the mission of humanity is in view here because whenever you see beauty in the scriptures, it has a quality not just of entertaining us or lifting our spirits, but also sending us. Great beauty sends you, right? Anybody who's ever fallen in love with someone understands what that means. Great beauty sends you somewhere. Right. So Elaine Scarry, she writes this. Uh, she wrote this book about beauty and she said real beauty seems to incite or even require replication. The things that we see and we experience that are beautiful, we want to remake. And so what God does here is he surrounds humanity with beauty, much in the same way that you might surround your kids with good music and good food in the hopes that they will repeat that experience in their own lives. You're teaching people, even as you teach your own kids how to be good craftsmen of good things, right? This is what God is doing. He intends for us to go and fill the earth with what we're experiencing in the garden. So there are descriptors of both gold and onyx in the land. Onyx, which is kind of a, it's a mineral. You look it up on your phones, not during the sermon, and see what it looks like. It, it, it's okay. There's gold and onyx in the land, and that might seem strange. Now, this theme shows up later on, when God begins to tell his people, look, this is what the high priest is called to wear. These are the colors that he'll wear on his garments. This golden onyx, these precious stones will reappear, right? And so you might wonder, what's going on here, right? Why is this liturgical wardrobe and why is this kind of liturgical mineral and, and beauty and gold being placed in the land? You know, what's going on with kind of this bling that God is bringing into the world? Why does it matter? But in the Bible... Precious stones and minerals are never the thing itself. It's, it, it's never the most important thing. They're always pointing the way to something else, you know? If you think about the descriptors of the city of God in the book of Revelation, the, the streets are made of what? Gold. Not because streets are precious in particular, but because of what you do as you walk on the street and where you go, right? And the Ark of the Covenant is decorated in some of the most finest, the most precious of minerals and woods. And yet what's really precious 
what's the real treasure is the presence of God amidst it, right? So whenever you see things like this beauty, you're, you're supposed to ask, why is all this beauty going here? And I want to say it's for this reason. You have the best plants. You have uh, the most beautiful things. You have just, just fantastically ornate creation. And I believe what it's intended to tell you over and over and over again is this place is supposed to be good, for good, for flourishing. The place where mankind was put by God is a place of flourishing. It's intended to exist as a place that makes us flourish. The design of the garden is all about human flourishing. The golden onyx, they're just precious. You and I are the treasure. Okay? So the creation of man, there's this word being used here. It says that God formed man. Yatser, which means to kind of to form like you're forming pottery or you're, like you're taking a potted plant and you're putting it into something designed for it. So we see more words of God's care toward creation and toward us. He puts us in a place he designs for us. Then God starts us breathing. Now the first breath, right, it even says here, I mean, this very, he, he kind of breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. This first breath starts a process of breathing from humanity. It's his creation. You know, the oxygen molecules were created by him. He starts us breathing. Oxygen fills the, uh, the, 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 uh, the areas in our lungs that carry oxygen and kind of pushes them out into the bloodstream as, we, as our chest cavity pushes on our lungs. And so suddenly we can breathe from the moment that we could understand it. Every single second, we were frail human beings that required breathing. God physically designs us. He designs us to be physically needy. Physically dependent. So he surrounds us with beauty and he makes us physically needy. What is he doing here? You know, why is God doing this? Why is he designing it this way? And then he does something else. He does some things that truly mystify us. For instance, now we start to ask the question, okay, we're there. We're we're amidst beauty. We're physically needy. Why does he have two trees? Every honest reader of the scriptures should be asking that question. Every honest reader of the scriptures should be saying, why not just the good tree? Like we kind of want to jump in and say, you know, Jesus, who is present at creation, this sounds interesting, but I'd prefer the one tree, only the good tree, right? And any person who's ever suffered, because we understand that this tree, the second tree is so tied to suffering that any preacher who holds his tongue about the rationale for two trees isn't worth his salt. You need to talk about the source of human suffering to the extent that God allows us to, right? So we see the two trees. What does it mean? We can't be silent about it. So what do we know? All right. I'll tell you what I think we know. The first is that we need, we need to understand these are not magic trees, all right? The best we can do is understanding that the power of the trees is not in the fact that they have some constitutional difference. They've been created as some different kind of tree, but that the power is in God designating them. This is the good tree that you can eat from. This is the bad tree that you can't eat from. You know that we do that every single week? This is the good bread and the good wine that you need to eat and drink. It's sacramental. 
when God creates these trees, he creates them what I would call sacramentally. Essentially, what he's saying is the power of those trees to bless or to curse is in God designating this one is good and this one is bad, right? Eat this one, don't eat this one. You were to eat of one tree, the tree of life, regularly in order to be properly related to God, all right? It established your willingness to live and to follow God. Now, the other tree was a tree of non-dependence. It was independence. I want to go my own way. They wanted to not need God. They ate from the I don't need God tree. It proclaimed their lack of faith, right? This is what's going on with these two trees. So God makes the world with this means of either nourishing their covenant relationship with him or of cursing their relationship and breaking their relationship with him. This is how he makes the world. Either approving or rejecting this covenant way of life, this agreement, this dependence upon God for blessing. So the question is, why allow that option? This is where we bump up against the limitations in the text. All right. And we're going to do this regularly in Genesis. So be ready for this. There are going to be times where we're going to have to say, I don't know exactly why this happens. We're not told. But as the Bible, just as the Bible doesn't intend in the first chapter. To give us the precise nature of these hours and these days, right? That's not his point. That's not what he's focused on. In the same way, it doesn't intend to reveal to us where sin and evil truly begin. Let me say why. Because. When Adam and Eve go, and we're, we're going to hear in uh, a couple weeks, when Adam and Eve go and they, they eat from the tree they're not supposed to, sin is already present. They already don't believe that God truly does care for them like he says he does. Something has already happened, right? So we're not given in the scriptures the very beginning of where sin happens, where it becomes present in the world. So maybe we can learn something from our earthly parenting as we try to think, why is God doing this? Now, the very best drivers are defensive drivers. The very worst drivers drive around roundabouts in Hilliard, right? The very best drivers are defensive drivers. The very best parents, too, are kind of defensive parents, right? As you parent, you are expecting things to collide that are not healthy. As you're watching your kids, you don't say, boy, I hope they don't run into the street. I'm going to keep watching them until they do, right? Your goal is to say, how do I stop this child from doing this? And it gets even better as they start to just really sin against each other. And you have to start to watch for the sin and expect that the sin's going to happen. And the book of Proverbs tells us that sin is kind of bound up in the heart of the child. You can't remove it. It's there. So the very best parents are defensive, proactively working before sin even happens, right? And so what I believe that God is really doing here is that he designates these trees as good and evil because he knows that even before they eat from the tree of sin, there, or tree of knowledge of good and evil, there will already be sin in the system. God is proactively drawing sin out into the open. He knows it's going on. He knows that by the time they eat from this tree, there will be sin in their hearts. He is drawing out the sin by giving them a tree of knowledge of good and evil. It's not uncaring or wrong for God to do this. He's not introducing sin. What he's doing is he's making sure that it's possible for there to be a third tree later. We'll talk about that third tree. So as much as we're made for beauty and flourishing, right? this is the deep stuff of the text. How do we understand this? We're also made to live sacramentally. All right? 
the, the trees are a sacrament. We're made to, to, to eat from a sacramental meal here every single week. We're made to seek the goodness of God through the experience of his physical world. We're supposed to live in this world and, and by using the world properly, we're called to be connected to God. That's why we were called to use it, right? But sometimes we love the blessing of the world more than the one who blesses it. Sometimes we love the creation more than the creator. In uh, every year uh, on the South Pacific Island of Port Vila, one of the 80 islands that compose the nation of uh, uh, Venuatu, locals parade through the town in homemade U.S. Army uniforms. And their goal, their, their rationale for doing this, they parade through the town beneath an American flag. They stage this homemade mock invasion in the hopes that they can persuade their God, whom they call John from, to deliver cargo to them similar to the cargo that came 50 years earlier when the United States landed on their island under the Stars and Stripes and brought cargo to their island. And so they're imitating that action. They're seeking to find blessing by imitating the action. Now, this isn't, this isn't just primitive cult work, okay? This isn't a primitive behavior, this is a sophisticated response to the world that, that should be familiar to you and me because we do the same thing. We also imitate actions that lead to blessing. We were made to seek relationship with God through his world, but instead we decide to seek his blessing instead. So we mimic the good works, the things we've done in the past that have resulted in good. We, we work hard. We go to work. We learn about God. We worship about God. But in terms of being connected to God, abiding in him and trusting in him, we don't do that because we want the stuff. We want the cargo. We want to be in control. We want to perform the ritual. We want to work the cosmic vending machine. So the two trees exist to draw out the difference between covenant relationship with God and self-serving relationship with the blessings of God. And we have been struggling with that choice ever since. So what God does here in the garden is he kind of draws fraudulent worship out of our hearts. We face the same exact challenge today to pursue kind of authenticity with God. I love the, the way that David Foster Wallace talks about this. It's in the voice, uh, he, he kind of writes in the voice of a 29-year-old yuppie named Neil. Yuppie is a great word. Here's what he says. He says, my whole life I've been a fraud. I'm not exaggerating. Pretty much all I've ever done all the time is to try to create a certain impression of me in other people, mostly to be admired or liked. Now, it's a little more complicated than that, maybe. But when you come right down to it, it's to be liked, loved, admired, approved of, applauded, whatever. I did well in school, but deep down, the whole thing's motive wasn't to learn or to improve myself. To do well, to get good grades, to make sports teams and perform well. To have a good transcript or varsity letters to show people. I didn't enjoy it so much as I was always scared that I wouldn't do well enough. The fear made me work really hard. So I'd always do well and it ended up getting what I wanted. 
But then once I got the best grade or made all city, I wouldn't feel much of anything except maybe the fear that I wouldn't be able to do it again. God gives us two trees because he's not content with humanity unspooling into fraudulent, phony religion, which is what we will do by nature. God knows we were made for more than cargo, more for empty rituals. What he does here ultimately, and I think we have to get this, it's so critical to get this right. Not only for Adam and Eve, but for for all of us. For all of us, as we try to interact with God, we have to get this part right. We're not made to have faith about God or to proclaim truth simply about God. right? Or to dress ourselves in religious clothes, to keep the home fires burning and disappear inside the fortresses in our homes. We were made to flourish by eating from God's own tree by being nourished by him. We were made to do that. We were made to live that way. We were made for faithfulness. This is the best way to express it. We were made for faithfulness to God. Not to impress God, to build a resume, not to earn anything from anyone, but to experience faithfulness with God. You and I were made to eat from that first tree. We chose the second tree and it killed us. What we all need to know is that God is so committed to us that he doesn't stop at two trees. He loves us so dearly that he's not willing to stop at two trees. Because we've gone out of his garden ashamed, we'll find later on, he makes a third tree. God makes a third tree. So that those who can't make themselves be faithful can become faithful. The tree, that third tree exists. So, you know, Steinbeck who writes in East of Eden, he says... The goal is to stop being perfect and start being good, right? God provides a way for us to be good again and to be in relationship with him again. How does he do it, right? The third tree, of course, it's that one placed outside of Jerusalem. It is the tree on which Jesus hangs. It is the tree from which we are called to look and to take and to eat, to see Jesus and be nourished by him, to look upon the atonement and recognize that it is for us. The third tree is Christ given for you. The third tree is the faithfulness of God. God gives us his own faithfulness so that we can be faithful to him. What the garden shows us is that the proper way to flourish as a human being, okay, here's kind of all of it together, is to make faithfulness to God the center of life lived for the good of the world. It's it's up here. The proper way to flourish as a human being is to make faithfulness to God the center, right in the midst of the world, that faithfulness of a life lived for the good of the world. That's what the garden shows us. That's what we're intent, that's what we're supposed to learn as we look at it. So what happens, right? What does that new world look like? If we're called to live this way, and if we live faithful lives to God, rather than lives seeking to build our resume about our goodness or to, or to be morally precise, if our goal is to be faithful to God, what happens in the end? Well, I'll tell you what happens. A new garden springs up around the third tree. A new garden springs up. Suddenly, transformation happens in the lives of human beings. Humanity in the garden at the end is vulnerable but unafraid, willing to truly be who they are at the end of chapter 2, we'll see. The church that eats from that third tree now flourishes in authenticity. God restores that authenticity. 
by seeking faithfulness to God, to be nourished from God, when we, when we are being nourished by the crucified Christ for us, we get freed by the resume-building religiosity, that way of trying to prove ourselves, that way of not loving God, but loving stuff about God, right? The difference there. This is what happens. We don't need to make ourselves something special because we're accepted by God, not on the basis of perfection, right? But because our hope is in Him, the perfect object of our faith. You can be a faithful mess. You don't have to prove yourself to be a a spiritual giant anymore. If faithfulness to God is the center of your life instead of soul-crushing moralism, you can honestly and authentically pursue Christ. And you can do that without fear when your spiritual growth is slow. Which might be one or two of us. Right? David Pallison, the Christian counselor, he, he passed into glory this week. And I thought that this was a, a really healthy and kind of covenantal view of spiritual, spiritual uh, health and growth. Okay? So I just I want you to listen. He, he talks about what it looks like to healthily grow in Christ. Here's what he says. The rate of sanctification is completely variable. I like that first line. It's really helpful. Right? The rate of sanctification is completely variable. We cannot predict how it will go. Some people, during some seasons in life, they leap and bound like gazelles. You know those people. We hate them. Let's say you've been living in flagrant sexual sins. Let's say you've been living in flagrant sexual sins. You turn from the sin to Christ, and the sin disappears. For other people and the same people at other seasons of life, sanctification is a steady, measured walk. You learn truth. You learn to serve others constructively. You build new disciplines. You learn basic life wisdom. You learn who God is, who you are, how life works. You learn to worship and pray and to give time and money, and caring, you grow steadily. Wonder of wonders, you grow, right? Other people, and the same people at other seasons, they trudge. It's hard going, you limp. You don't seem to get that far that fast. We have some trudgers in here. Anybody who's willing to own that, just think about it. Are you a trudger, right? But if you're trudging in the right direction, someday you'll see him face to face. You'll be like him. Now, is that the slowest sanctification goes? No, no, no. There's a speed below trudging. All right. Some people crawl on their hands and knees. Progress is painful. Praise God for the glory of his grace. You are inching in the right direction. Is that the slowest rate of sanctification growth possible? No, there's another one. And then there are times you aren't moving, stuck in gridlock, broken down, but you're still facing the right direction. The church that understands that faithfulness to God is the center of a life lived well are a people that do not have to gauge their growth and grace by any kind of modern or ordinary metric but by their love and worship of God and by his love in particular for them. This is what happens. So what that does to a church is is when you eat from that third tree that's nourished 
by the faithfulness of God instead of their religious works, what happens is you start to draw all kinds of hungry people. They'll find you. They'll come from their suburban homes. They'll ask you questions about life and faith. It'll be really annoying. You'll be on your way to go do something else and someone will want to talk to you about real stuff going on in their lives. They'll want to sit at your table because they found somebody who believes in a God that doesn't ask them for perfection. A God who creates in order to covenant. The hungry people will come out of Every place. So I want to give you a few ways to take this with you. One is this. Train your spirituality. Train a proper view of your spirituality by confessing and giving thanks. Those, those dual actions. We have to stop speaking non-covenantally about our spiritual progress. Maybe actually just stop talking about spiritual progress altogether, maybe. Or, or about your spiritual progress. Start bragging about each other's spiritual progress. That might be a start. But here's one. Don't say things like, I'm just giving you a list of things not to say, right? Like I tell you things not to drink from time to time. I'm telling you things not to say, right? Don't say, I'm a bad Christian. Or I'm not a good enough Christian. Or even, I just have to do better. That's not relationship with God. Covenant faithfulness uses the imagery of eating for a reason. It's a tree with fruit from which you should eat in order to be faithful. It's not a puzzle for you to work to show everybody how good you are, right? This is a goodwill hunting where God says, if you want to love me well, show up and solve the equation from day to day so that everybody can see how spiritual you are. Instead, it is no, you're not to unlock the mysteries of life. You're to eat. Eat from God. Be nourished by God. You need to pursue dependence instead of performance. So this week, I want us to think more. If you, if you can look at it this way, think more about your belonging to Jesus than your religious and spiritual skill. Think about the object of your faith more than your own faith. Now, the best way to do this is to confess sin and give thanks. God gives us those disciplines in prayer to repent, to give thanks, to, to remember how much we need God and to give thanks for what God gives it's respiration, man. It's that breathing again. Breathing in and breathing out. Confessing. Giving thanks. It, it builds us up in a proper covenantal faith. Right? On my first date with Laura, I get to mention this because Laura always likes to tell this story before I get a chance to. So I'm telling all of you now. On my first date with Laura, she had to pay because I forgot my wallet in my dorm room. Uh, it was humiliating. It was. But it was also frustrating for somebody who wanted more than anything else to feel like a self-qualified human being. A competent man. Right? Whatever that meant. I wanted to be that. Now, every single day, every single moment of your life, you are so utterly dependent upon the goodness and mercy and nourishment of God that you are a guy who forgets wallet 24 hours a day, seven days a week. This is who we are as we interact with a God who at his core says, trust me, rely upon me, eat from me. Faithfulness means recognizing that we, have, that we are the people who cannot pay. So things that work against that, right, things that work against being in that place spiritually where we are dependent upon God, doesn't matter how good those things are, right? Something that works against that, like 
like being proud of your daily Bible reading or devotion or evaluating God's care for you uh, based on whether or not you have doubts in your life, right? Whatever metric you use, it's counterproductive spiritually. Whatever way you seek to be good at faith, all right? If it's not dependence upon Christ, it is self-defeating. Should you want those things? Of course. Should you want to be, read your Bible well? Yes, absolutely. Should you want to reach out to your neighbor? Absolutely. But those things cannot tell you whether or not you're really special to God. That is already spoken for by the work of that third tree and eating from it. Sometimes, as one theologian puts it, we have to repent of our good works because they push us away from neediness and dependence upon God. Confess sin, give thanks. Here's the second thing to do. So one is train your spirituality by confessing and giving thanks. The second one is to pray for the diverse mission of the church of Jesus. Pray for the diverse mission of the church of Jesus. Pray for God to make our church more diverse as a mark of true faith. So seriously, I mean that. Today, the church celebrates Pentecost. Which many of us think of a day where we gain spiritual relatives that speak in tongues and it makes us feel weird from time to time, right? This is not what Pentecost primarily is about. Pentecost is not about that. What happens at Pentecost is this is the birth of the church in the New Testament. It's a day that was marked by people of all tongues hearing the message of the gospel in their own languages. But do you know what's also incredibly miraculous about that? It's because it's the day that the church learned to speak in the language of all peoples. It was the day in which the church learned how to be diverse. And it's no mystery that Peter's sermon following that mark of incredible kingdom diversity was the one that suddenly seemed to save thousands because people saw that this was a mark of God's transformative work. Here in the garden, the purpose of Adam and Eve is to replicate the mission of faithfulness to God by filling the whole earth. Have you thought about what that means? The whole earth. All kinds of places. It's a mission of diversity. Every kind of place. Every kind of ground. In our own day, we fulfill this calling by learning to speak the language, so to speak, of all people as the church. And to welcome them in. This has to be a diverse church to make sense of what the garden is seeking to accomplish. Diversity of all kinds. Racially, racially, socioeconomically, culturally. Many of you know uh, that a friend of mine, I'll just close with this. Many of you know that a friend of mine who uh, attended our church briefly earlier this year lost his battle with drug addiction uh, this last week. And uh, I had the chance to, to see him come to the table. And um, some of you stood with him at the table. And I had the chance to, to minister the Lord's Supper to him. And to tell him, Christ has given for you. His, his blood is shed for you, you know, to tell him that. He loved being at this church. The, the first thing he seemed to talk about was not, by the way, the preaching at the church. The first thing he seemed to talk about was the welcome he experienced at the church. As he, as he talked about that, I realized this. If we had been, in his experience, a church that communicated that you do well spiritually by your moral precision and being better at church than the people around you. He would have immediately left. Because he's a drug addict. 
And he knows what drug addiction looks like. And sometimes it looks like the way that the church pursues its spirituality. It would have been gone. But he knew that wasn't the case. And he stuck around. And I wish, man, I look back and I think, I wish, you're tempted to think, I wish I could have healed this person. But then I have to remind myself, he is healed. Right? He is present with the Lord. He's with Christ. I miss him. But I thought you would be heartened to know that his view of this church was that this was a unique kind of spirituality. And that it was different than the kind of addictive behavior he had experienced his whole life. That's what's at stake in how we do church. That's what's at stake in how we understand spirituality. How we regard each other's spirituality. How we treat each other as we seek to follow Jesus. This is what's at stake. We have to recognize we're made for faithfulness to God and nothing else. Let's practice that through the rest of our worship. Let me pray for us.